We are in Revelation chapter 22. We've made it to the last chapter. So, only took a couple weeks to get there. So, but we are there. So, that's pretty awesome. Turn to Revelation 22, and we're going to read the first five verses. Please listen carefully as this is the Word of God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us your word and making us your people. God, as we come to your word this morning, as we get close to finishing, this great book of Revelation that we've been in for the last year, we pray that you would give us a longing of heaven, a longing for the new heavens and the new earth, a longing for the new Jerusalem, the new Eden. That as we see what John saw, like the trailer before a great movie, that our hearts would be filled with anticipation, our imagination would be overwhelmed, that we would just desire to run headlong into the future awaiting the heaven you've prepared for us overwhelm us as you overwhelmed john remind us of what this is all about lord it's our prayer that we would see jesus and love him and stick close to him as our great god and king it's our prayer god that one day by grace we would see you face to face do this for each of us this morning in the majestic name of jesus we pray Amen. Amen. Anticipation is part of daily life. It can build hope on one end and paralyze us on the other. Joy, enthusiasm, and encouragement mark anticipation, but so does disillusionment and anxiety and fear. Whatever it is that one anticipates will fuel either hope or fear. Anticipation excites the emotions, it drives the mind, or it plunges our emotions to the depth and stifles all action on our part. We can run the whole gamut with anticipation. I mean, there's a big difference between anticipating gallbladder surgery and anticipating a trip to the beach. Surgery or the beach? I think I'll choose beach. Anticipating a funeral brings far different emotions than does anticipating a wedding. And yet we live by anticipation, whether it's for better or worse. Students anticipate the opening of the school doors in the morning. Parents anticipate the changing of the routines from summer's slower pace. 
College students anticipate leaving home and meeting new friends. Senior students anticipate graduation. Senior adults anticipate retirement. A strained employee anticipates Friday's deliverance from a bad week. Amen. A criminal might anticipate both escape and arrest. A drug addict, an alcoholic, a pornographer might anticipate stopping his destructive habit as well as anticipate her next indulgence. What does anticipation have to do with your life as a follower of Christ? Now suppose you lived under the constant scrutiny of a government opposed to your faith in Christ. Suppose you were watched day and night. Every word and deed in which you were engaged was sifted through to find something to incriminate you with. Suppose you were Muhammad Ahmed Hagezi. You were raised Muslim, but after hearing the gospel, you trusted Christ and became a disciple of his. And you lived in Egypt, where Sharia, uh, Sharia law makes no allowance for a Muslim to change his religion. And your attorney, who's supposed to represent you before the authorities in order for you to officially change your religious status, which has to be registered with the government, quits because the death threats against him for representing you have become too much. And everywhere you turn, family, friends, those in the community that know your face, everyone you know might turn you over to the authorities who will arrest you, torture you, and quite possibly kill you. So you go into hiding. How far can you run? Who will take you in? Who can you trust? How long will it last? This isn't a make-believe story. It's happening all over the world. It's been happening for years. It's happening today. And the anticipations of this brother and many, many more like him will either paralyze him with fear or liberate him to walk in hope regardless of his circumstances. Something similar can be found in the letters to the seven churches to whom the book of Revelation is written. Just go through them real quick. Jesus told the Ephesian church, remember they had left their first love, he told them, to the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. To the persecuted church in Smyrna, the Lord writes about anticipating a pain free eternity. The one who conquers will not be hurt by the second death. The church of Pergamum, where the faithful Antipas had been martyred and yet had put up with idolatrous teaching, Christ told the overcomers to anticipate being fed heavenly manna. Remember, they were getting shut out of all the commerce. They could, because they were Christians, nobody would trade with them. And he says, to the one who conquers, I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. To the church in Thyatira, was beleaguered by immorality and false teaching. Jesus declares, as they're getting besieged, that they could anticipate having amazing authority. 
2.26. The one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations. Overcomers in the Sardis church could anticipate being clothed in white garments and having their names in the book of life. Revelation 3.5. The one who conquers will be clothed thus in white garments. And I will never blot his name out of the book of life. I will confess his name before my father and before his angels. To the suffering church in Philadelphia, the Lord tells them to anticipate eternal security. Revelation 3.12. The one who conquers, I will make him a pillar in the temple of my God. Never shall he go out of it. And I will write on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem which comes down from God out of heaven and my own new name. And then the Laodicean church, the lukewarm church, the one he threatened, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth because you're neither hot nor cold. The overcomers there are told to anticipate sitting down with Christ on his throne. Revelation 3.21, the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. The anticipation of Christ's redemptive provisions for eternity become the source of encouragement to live as overcomers, as one who conquers. We learn something very important from both the letters to the seven churches and how it comes together in this last chapter in the book of Revelation. We're supposed to find regular encouragement to live as overcomers by anticipating the new Jerusalem and all that it promises. If our hope is bound up by the constraints of geography or personality or time, then ultimately we will face despair. But if our hope, our anticipation rests upon all that Jesus Christ has secured through his redemptive work, then we'll find courage and encouragement to persevere as faithful disciples of Jesus Christ. How does this teaching uh, concerning the new Jerusalem in Revelation 22, help us, present-day believers, to live as overcomers. We're going to consider this in two parts. First, we'll look at the scene explaining how we're to see the New Jerusalem, and then we'll look at how we're to live in the New Jerusalem. So the first thing we see here, how we see the New Jerusalem, verses 1 and 2, the picture of life in the New Jerusalem. The picture of life. Let's look at those verses. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. If you remember, John's description of the New Jerusalem began back at the beginning of chapter 21. In 21, verse 2, he writes, And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And then he hears an angel telling him to come. We're going to go through 21 real quick. And would show him, 21, 9, the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
And then from the vantage point of a high mountain, he sees not what he would have expected as a bride, but rather, verses 10 and 11, the holy city Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper, clear as crystal. And then he describes the city using metaphorical language to explain its glory and beauty and holiness and completeness and eternal security. It's both a bride as the community of the redeemed and a city as the dwelling place of the redeemed with the throne of God and the Lamb in its midst. Revelation 21:22. I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. It has no need for sun, moon, lamp, because the glory of God and the Lamb are its light. And then we read, uh, end of 21, verses 24 and 26, by its light will the nations walk, the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it, they will bring into it the glory and honor of the nation, showing that everything good and honorable and God-pleasing from every culture and nationality will be included in this recreated heaven and earth. The new Jerusalem includes the best from every age in the original creation. Now reordered by the full application of the redemptive work of Christ so that every trace of sin is purged. It's a place of endless day where darkness uh, and night never enters. And there are... those there uh, whose names are not written in the book of life cannot be found. They're not there. Only those whose names have been written in the book of life. And then the chapter division uh, in chapter 22 somewhat blurs what is actually a continued description of the New Jerusalem that runs all the way from 21.9 to 22.5. And here John is describing eternal things so wondrous, so perfect, so pure, so holy, that only the most imaginative human language can begin to approach what he saw with some basic level of understanding. He's already described the city as a perfect cube, 12,000 stadia long, wide, and high, or to use literal ideas, a city that is 1,500 miles in length, width, and height. And his intention is not to be literal, but to explain something of such grandeur that only this kind of imaginative language can picture for the heart what the mind can't grasp. He's basically telling us, you've got to see with your heart now, because what I'm telling you is just beyond your ability to really understand. And so he starts by telling us that it's a place of abundant satisfaction. Abundant satisfaction. Most of the Apostle John's life, as you know, was spent uh, in the Middle East. It was spent in a dry, arid climate. So I think one of the clearest statements of an abundantly satisfying life would be found in an eternal river. Look at verse 1. The angel showed me the river of the water of life. And he tells us something about the purity of this river. It's bright as crystal. Not tainted by pollution or chemical runoffs or debris 
They never have to have, like, you have a, a clean the Potomac River one day a year, and they go and pull cars and shopping carts and tires and junk out of it. Never have to do that with this river. It's bright as crystal. It's completely pure. And it's always inviting. It's always inviting. And, and that's uh, rightly so, because... Uh, God's intention here is for us to understand the water of life as something that comes from God. And it's been that way throughout the Bible. If we go back and look at the Psalm, Psalm 46, there is a river whose streams make glad the city of God, the holy habitation of the Most High. God is in the midst of her. She shall not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Jesus told the Samaritan woman, that he alone could give her living water. John chapter 4. Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will well up in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. He told those who heard him at the climax of the Feast of Booths that believing in him would cause rivers of living water to flow from their hearts. John chapter 7, on the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, if anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. This abundant water of life was anticipated by the prophet Zechariah, Zechariah 14. On that day, living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem, half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea. It shall continue in summer as in winter. But the primary picture that John summarizes is that of Ezekiel's temple vision. In his vision in Ezekiel 47, he saw water begin to flow from the temple, first as a trickle, but the farther it flowed, the deeper it got. It was ankle deep, and then it was knee deep, and then it was waist deep, and then he said he had to swim until it was filled with life, and it says it even brought life to the Dead Sea. Wherever the water flows, it provides life because it's flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And that's the primary thrust of this picture, because God's on the throne, the new Jerusalem will never fail in maintaining super abundant life for all of its residents. You ready for that? Had enough of this? Then John adds a, a few more pictures to help reinforce this idea of abundant satisfaction found in New Jerusalem. Verse 2, he writes, Through the middle of the street of the city, also on either side of the river, the tree of life. In Genesis chapter 3, part of our responsive reading this morning, Adam and Eve were barred from the Garden of Eden because they might eat of the tree of life and live forever. They had eaten of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And we have the fall. And they're subject to sin. And sin brings death. And God's immediate response is to kick them out of the garden and bar them because they might eat of the tree of life and be stuck perpetually, eternally in a state of sin. 
It was an act of God's great mercy to kick him out of the garden so his redemptive plan could take effect so that they could come once again to the new Jerusalem and come back to the river of life. They don't have to live forever in a state of sin, and neither do we. It wasn't an act of wrath that kicked him out of the garden. It was an act of mercy. Because it paved the way for redemption. You remember the scene they get get kicked out because they might eat of the tree of life and there's cherubim. They're not the little pretty angels you see at Christmas. These are big scary angels. We saw that back in Daniel. Flaming swords. Not regular swords, not even big swords. Flaming swords. A word of advice. If you see a big scary angel with a flaming sword, don't mess with him. That's bad. You don't want to do that. Be really nice to the big angels. We don't know all that's involved with the tree of life, but we know that its properties are sustaining and overcoming even the most destructive effects of sin. And while Adam and Eve are barred from the tree, we're welcome to it. You get to the New Jerusalem, you're welcome. You're invited to the tree of life. And the indication of of a singular tree in multiple locations on either side of the river suggests not one tree, but a forest of trees lining the street of New Jerusalem. Again, it's a picture of abundance. And John also tells us this tree, with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. I thought it was funny that he said each month. He resorts to using a calendar in a realm where there is no need for a watch. There's no need for a day timer. There's no need for Microsoft Outlook, which I'm told is a common download in hell. (laughs) But how else can John explain such abundance never ceasing to produce abundant satisfaction without resorting to language that we can grasp? And then we read the leaves of the trees were for the healing of the nations. Well, he's already told us in Revelation 21 that it'll wipe away every tear from their eye and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning nor crying nor pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Since there's no longer any death or mourning or crying or pain, all of that having passed away, then why is there a need for healing leaves? I don't know. One commentator offered what I thought was a pretty solid explanation that due to John's imagery, his symbols, which belong to the present age, the healing leaves indicate a complete absence of physical or spiritual want. The idea isn't just that you get there and you're healed one time, but that you're living in a state of perpetual healing that you arrive and everything's as good as it can be and it gets better every day. It's hard for us to understand this side of heaven. The life to come is going to be a life of abundant perfection. So it's not like you're going to arrive and you, know, you got it all. 
and you got to live with that. There's more perfection comes every day. Every day you wake up to more abundance, more satisfaction, more perfection. It gets better and better and better beyond our ability to imagine. You remember back in Revelation chapter 11, we were going through all the hard stuff and the wrath and there was the two witnesses of God and they got killed for their testimony to Christ. And we read about the street, the bodies of the two witnesses lay there in the midst of the great city of the world. And it said, and their dead bodies lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt, where their Lord is crucified, symbolizing everything bad with the world system and the two witnesses uh, to the testimony of Christ and the Word of God were slain and left in the street. We have that comparison now to the New Jerusalem where there's a street untouched by sin, where life flows from the throne of God, where on either side eternal food satisfies every desire. Security is never threatened on that holy street where the redeemed walk in the light of God's glory. That's what we'll see there. And what we see there will have a profound effect on how we live there. So let's look at the effects of life in the new Jerusalem. Verses 3 through 5. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no lamp, light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. I'm not sure that our generation has had a lot of solid biblical thought about the new Jerusalem, the new heaven and earth. It's not talked about as much as it was in past generations. If you go back even just as, as far back as the Puritans, their writing is filled with this kind of language. You know, today it's sort of glamorized at times or morphed into some kind of movie set in our imagination. It's thought of as a the great recreation center in the sky or a place where we'll just kind of kick back and laze away the days of eternity. Personally, I've been convicted over the last uh, year that I have not thought enough or preached enough on this subject of living in the light of eternity. How should this knowledge of revelation, how should this knowledge of the new heavens and earth, how does that affect how we live right here and now? Here's the great motivation in Revelation that begins with the unfolding of the Lamb of God in the sufficiency of His death, culminates in the grand application of that redemptive work in heaven. Everything is affected by it. The unbelieving are judged, Corruption, destructiveness, hatred, every effect of sin is removed. The whole cosmos is renewed and reestablished as a display of the glory of God. That's something to think about. That's big stuff that we've got going on here. So the question is, what's heaven like? To ask the same question from a different angle, what's life like in the New Jerusalem? Scripture constantly contrasts the world of men and the rule of God. Starting all the way back in Genesis, all the way through the Bible, you had a jealous and angry Cain killing his righteous brother Abel. Noah lives as a righteous man in the midst of a world of rebellion against God. 
the Lord chose Abraham out of Ur of the Chaldeans, separating him from idolatry, delivering him from the world. Sodom and Gomorrah perished because of their great sin, while God delivered Lot. Daniel and his friends didn't defile themselves with the Babylonian king's food, but lived distinctly from them as God's children. But all of them, Abel, Noah, Abraham, Lot, and Daniel, still sinned. And all of them still lived in a sinful world. And then we get to this passage. And it captures the entire atmosphere of this holy place. It says, no longer will there be anything accursed. Night will be no more. John has previously used that same phrase to alert us to the distinctly different atmosphere of heaven. Going back to that same verse in Revelation 21, verse 4. Read again, he will wipe away every tear from their eyes and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning or crying or pain anymore for the former things have passed away. Why will these things be no more? Why will these things that are the effects of sin pass away? The answer lies in the cross of Christ. Death, mourning, crying, pain, curse, and night as a metaphor for spiritual darkness all met their match at the cross. The wretched fruits from the fall were born by the incarnate God, Jesus Christ, as he took him out of the way by his death. And summed up by the word curse, a term that means something that is accursed by God, the cross severed its head and crushed it in defeat. Think about that. There will no longer be any curse. Listen to the nightly news. Pick up this morning's paper and then think about there will no longer be any curse. Will we have news? It was another great day in the New Jerusalem today. See you at 11. You know, and though we're living in this present evil age, we have a divine promise that the day will come when every taint and trace of sin's effects in this world will be gone and gone forever. Second thing we need to know about living in the New Jerusalem is that it's not about us, but it's about the throne of God and the Lamb and His presence in our midst. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. That's what makes it heaven. Remember how sad and broken the disciples were uh, when Jesus died on the cross? They didn't yet understand the necessity for his death and the reality of his resurrection. They just sorrowed and suffered because Christ was no longer with them. And remember what joy overwhelmed them when news came of the resurrection? Peter and John ran to the tomb to see for themselves. And again, he appeared to them and they saw him touched him, listened to him, I think just stared at him. So amazing was all of this that the Apostle John opened his first epistle, the first thing that he wrote, because he wrote the letters before the gospel. 
First thing he says is that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. He looked back upon that time when the Son of God walked among them. The Apostle Peter humbly yet buoyantly wrote 2 Peter chapter 1, For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. The apostle Paul related the gospel to the Corinthians and he spoke of Christ appearing to them, 1 Corinthians 15, and that Christ appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, and then to the twelve. And then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. Each of these men were overwhelmed by seeing, touching, and hearing Jesus briefly on earth. And John is telling us that those amazing experiences pale in comparison to the eternity of his throne in the midst of the new Jerusalem with no darkness to hide his presence and no curse to separate us from him. Finally, what we need to know about living in the new Jerusalem is that it will be full of people. How do you describe those redeemed by Christ gathered around his throne for eternity? First, their servants. We see that end of verse 3. His servants will worship him. Some of your versions use the word serve him, but it's in that idea of a worship service. That worship is a service to God. A servant is a willing subject to his master. No one's going to be in heaven that doesn't want to be there. And that verb, will worship, translates a term that's used for this service of worship, particularly the kind of service related to worship in the temple. So it's not just praise, although it does include that. Rather, all that the redeemed will be engaged in in doing those things that bring glory and honor to the Lord. All of that will be an act of worship. We get a hint of that in uh, Romans 12.1, which we spent, I think, a month on that verse. It was like six years ago. Paul tells us, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. It's the same word that John uses here. When the Lord God put Adam in the garden to cultivate and keep it, the charge was more than just assigning him farming duties. Through his gardening, Adam expressed glory to God, even worshiping him through obediently tending the garden. And the multitude of the redeemed in the New Jerusalem will do no less. Second, we're told that his servants, verse 4, will see his face. Moses asked to do that. He didn't get to do that. It would have killed him. He got a small glimpse of his back. And what Moses could not do on earth, probably the, the most righteous man of the Old Testament, what Elijah could not do on the mountain, the saints get to do for eternity. 
They will see his face. Dr. Dennis Johnson, uh, who wrote, I think, the best uh, commentary on Revelation. And by the way, he's coming to speak to our Presbytery retreat in September, and I am so excited. Uh, but he put it clearly in his commentary called Triumph of the Lamb. Seeing his face is deadly danger to us now because we're defiled by sin. But then all the shame and guilt will be a thing of the past and we'll stand before him beautiful in the robe of righteousness that he has given us. What fantastic news this is to all of our brothers and sisters suffering under the weight of oppression across the globe. They will see his face. One look will erase all the pain. It's amazing. Third, the intimacy of our relationship to the Lord is expressed by the phrase, his name will be on their foreheads. In contrast to those with the mark of the beast, on their foreheads, the redeemed will be marked by the character of the Redeemer. The name embodies the character of the person. His name on our foreheads implies the firm stamp of his holiness will never be diminished in his people. I mean, you're sinful now. You're worse than you think. And so am I. But not there. We'll really be, finally be holy. Fourth, we see there's no need for light. Verse 5, there'll be no need of lamp or sun for the Lord God will be their light. The redeemed will always live in the light of God's glory. That implies both purity and knowledge without anything held back. And we read they'll reign forever and ever. John doesn't fill in the details on this reign since the great emphasis here is on the intimate communion between the redeemed and the Redeemer, and that we're all going to be sort of corporately swept up in His eternal reign. There's no division between the King and His servants. And before we finish, notice the scene here, described here by the Apostle John, reminds us of the essential features of the Garden of Eden. Some of that text, again, was part of our responsive reading this morning. There, the tree of life and the river of life flowed from Eden. That which we lost and the Garden of Eden is regained in the heavenly city because of the saving work of the Lamb who has triumphed over all of his enemies. This is where the story of redemption inevitably leads to a new Eden, an Eden which far surpasses the glories of the Garden in Genesis 2 and 3. And the new Eden... The garden in, in the New Jerusalem will not only drink freely from the river of life, but will eat from the tree of life, the same tree which Adam was barred from after the fall. The curse will be gone and will fulfill that end for which we were created and will be safe and secure and satisfied and will see the glory of God. As Paul writes in 1 Corinthians, for now we see in a mirror dimly, but then face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And if it's true that our hope, our anticipation rests upon all that Jesus has secured through his redemptive work, then we will find today the courage and encouragement to persevere as faithful followers of Jesus Christ. We're supposed to find regular encouragement in these pages to live as overcomers by anticipating the new Jerusalem and all that it promises. You know, 
we've just been through two weddings. And after each of the wedding receptions, someone, I won't say who, someone here, said to me, you Silvernails sure know how to throw a good party. And there's some truth to that. But I started wondering about the final party, the once we get to heaven party, the eternal party, the wedding feast of the Lamb. And assuming that my family doesn't all die at the same time, which would be difficult unless we're on a plane because now there's at least 12 of us, not counting the honorary family members, which bumps it up to about 16 or so. But assuming my family doesn't all die at the same time, I started to wonder, how are we going to find each other when we get there? So I thought we need to designate a meeting place when we get to the heavenly city. You have to have this picture in your mind. Revelation 22 says there's a river as clear as crystal flowing down from the throne of God down the middle of the great street of the city, and on each side of the river is the tree of life. Can you see that in your mind? Get that picture? Throne, river, flowing down the street, tree of life going down both sides. The Lord Jesus is sitting gloriously on the throne, this great tree-lined river crashing down from the throne, vast throngs of people from every part of the world celebrating. I can't wait. But I want to make sure my friends and family know where to find me. Where are we going to meet? So here's the plan. <laughs> We're all going to meet at the seventh tree on the right side of the river facing the throne. Be sure it is the right side of the river as you face the throne. Then count seven trees back. You know, then I was concerned. What if our spot's already taken? What if someone like Daniel or Ezekiel or Jeremiah has reserved our tree? Well, we're going to be right next to that tree in the heavenly city. He's just going to have to share the space. Seventh tree on the right. And if you know Christ, can you find a few moments today to reflect on what you're looking forward to in the heavenly city? Who are you looking forward to seeing? Can you imagine feeling perfectly healthy? No more death, mourning, crying, or pain. Now, I know there's a certain number of people who will listen to this sermon on the podcast. Some are friends. Some are former members of Potomac Hills who've moved away. Some are other pastors because they call me and ask, you know, what do I do with this? I heard you on... But surprisingly, some are people who listen to it that I've never met. And to those of you who will listen to this, whom I've never met, let me introduce myself. I'm Dave Silvernail of Potomac Hills Presbyterian Church in Leesburg, Virginia. And I'm sure I won't meet all of you personally this side of heaven. But wouldn't it be cool if the first time you and I shook hands was at the heavenly city before the throne of the Lord Jesus Christ? And through faith in Christ, you can be there. Come on by. I'd love to meet you. I'd love for you to meet my family at the great celebration of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. It's important that none of you forget the directions. <laughs> Joanne and I want you to come to the party. We'll be at the seventh tree, right side, 
facing the throne. We'll see you there. Remember those directions. You need to pray. Take a moment to do that, and then I'll close. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you again for revealing Jesus to us. Lord Jesus, thank you that you lived without sin on the earth. Thank you that you died for our sin. Thank you that you're coming again. Thank you that by grace you will forgive all of our sins and you'll empower us to walk away from our sins as we walk with you. Thank you that the final word of the Bible is not death or condemnation or evil or Satan, but is in fact grace. We love you for your grace. We thank you for your grace. I pray for those who are here that God, uh, that they would cling to your grace. Lord, take our prayers today as incense into your presence. Take our songs, harmonize them with the angels. Prepare our hearts for that place to which we are going. We look forward to it coming down out of heaven. We long for your coming. We anticipate the new Jerusalem. We ask all this in the name of your son, Jesus, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, now and forever. Amen.